Welcome to our Owen podcast, a podcast for the Ontario Animal Health Network. I'm Dr. Cynthia Miltonbury, co-lead of the Owen Bovine Network, and I'm so glad joining me today is Dr. Ron Erskine, a professor emeritus with the College of Veterinary Medicine at Michigan State University. Ron's research and expertise in dairy production medicine includes bovine infectious diseases, antibiotic use, and expertise in milk quality, with a real focus on employee training and engagement. Thank you, Ron, for joining us today. Thank you, Cynthia, and good to be here, and hello to all you uh, practitioners driving around your trucks. (laughs) Thanks, Ron. And so today our goal is to discuss um, bovine leukemia virus and just, you know, some of the things we've learned in the last couple of years and the impacts of BLV and and how to manage it. And I have had the privilege of hearing Ron speak on this um, topic before. And so I invited him to, to join us today because I think this is a disease that we're, we're revisiting and looking at again and how we can um, move forward with control of this disease. So um, I'm going to start by asking Ron, maybe like what is bovine leukemia virus? You know, how do we, how do we think about this virus? I'm sure uh, most of the listeners are, are at least aware of this, but just a real brief review. Uh, bovine leukemia virus is a retrovirus, meaning it inserts its RNA into um, target cells, lymphocytes, and like all viruses do, then use the host cell to make more virus. It's kind of a invasion of the body snatchers sort of thing. Uh, but the virus creates the disease Enzootic bovine leukemia, that's quite a mouthful. Let's just simply call it a, uh, or can, uh, after it, if you uh, invades the, the lymphocytes, it can, in a subset of cows, not all, create leukemia. That is a lymphocytosis throughout the blood. In more advanced cases, lymphosarcoma. And probably uh, many practitioners have run across the quote unquote cancer cow. Uh, you know, we think of uh, the retral bulbar uh, type of tumors. Uh, you've palpated, I'm sure, uh, but I always used to tell students I feel like the marbles in the uterus, um, abomasum, spinal cord. And these are cows, of course, that are condemned uh, for slaughter. But for many years, that was the focus of this virus and the disease that it caused was this more uh, pronounced or farther along the spectrum of the clinical symptoms, which really only account for a small percentage, probably less than 5%, uh, if you let them get old enough, of the cows that are affected. Uh, so historically, just it has been an, of interest because here we have this virus that causes cancer, uh, if you, and it, that creates uh, certainly a lot of concern. It can be transmissible. Again, I'm sure most practitioners know that um, as with a human case of like hepatitis or HIV, uh, generally a direct blood-to-blood transmission. Now, perhaps in utero, things like this. uh, But so the control of which has been how do we prevent a cow who's infected since it can be quote-unquote contagious, uh, who has the virus and lymphocytes that are infected with the virus, how do we prevent 
that cow's infected lymphocytes transmitting the viruses to other animals. Okay. So you kind of mentioned the lymphosarcoma cow um, presentation, which I think when I went to vet school, I feel like I learned about this virus was like 5% of cows, you know, lots of cows get it, but only 5% become lympho, <laughs> develop lymphosarcoma. And so it's not that big a deal. But you kind of mentioned another syndrome there, which is the persistent lymphocytosis. Is there significance to that um, uh, state as well? Yes, there is, Cynthia. And yeah, that I, it's been a while since I got out of school, but yeah, the, the uh, conventional wisdom for years was, hey, it's, and rightfully so, because of the costs of cold cows, it was all about the cancer. And, and we tended to say, yep, we have a lymphocytosis, that is, this leukemia, higher absolute lymphocyte count, let's just call it that. And we can talk about what normal is a little bit later. But yes, the answer to your question is, uh, we have come to realize over the last, oh, 10, you know, 12 years or more uh, through a variety of research done in South America, Japan, here in North America, that the lymphocytic state is more than just a, uh, a leukemia per se that may lead to lymphosarcoma. What it really is signaling to us is that there has been a shift in that cow's immune function. <clears throat> and this, depending on, like so many other infectious diseases, there's a spectrum of infected with hardly any consequences. I mean, I can even, we can draw this analogy to mastitis or anything. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, but on this lymphocytosis, again, we have a spectrum. And we now realize that the more pronounced the lymphocytomasis or the leukemia, we can just call it that, the more pronounced the leukemia, the, uh, the more likely that there, there are costs to that cow's immune system, that there may be some dysfunction, and this then can backdoor her susceptibility, if you will, or her ability to respond to vaccines to other infectious agents. Okay. It makes me feel a little better to hear you say 10 to 12 years ago, Ron, because I, I graduated from vet school 12 years ago, so I wasn't just not paying attention, I, I guess. <laughs> so so what are the costs to that like immune system um, uh, reduced function? In, in What are the practical costs that we can measure? Is it milk production? Yeah. So it's it's, again, it's more than just a, we used to think, hey, we just have this proliferation of B cells, which of course happens. So let me just get just a little wonky and then we'll talk about what does it mean for the everyday workaday world. Uh, we now know that there are alterations in cytokine profiles in these cows. There are alterations in even T cell function. Now we, that was kind of new these last few years. And as I'm sure many out there know, the T cells are critical and I call them kind of like the traffic cops of uh, the immune system. So there are very good uh, immunology studies that we now, just so you know, there's some very sound science behind it. Uh, interestingly, BLV also alters the, uh, the impact of, or the progress of Yoni's disease in cows. Uh, Yoni's disease tends to set up a, an environment of where there's a lot of, uh, 
oh, suppressor cells, you know, cells that down-regulate the inflammatory responses, how it can hang out so long in the cow's gut. When BLV arrives, um, this all changes the cytokine profile and the infection becomes much more aggressive. Let me just, if I can just sidetrack a little um, anecdote. One of the reasons we got involved with BLV, I too, <laughs> for a long time, said, oh, no, no, it's just a few cancer cows. We were doing a... Uh, uh, we, we went out to do a profile, or, and we'll get into that, that testing what, what's, who has BLV and how much. Got a call from a practitioner and said, well, what's this BLV yoni study you're doing? And I said, well, no, 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 we're not, we're not testing yonis. It's all about BLV. Well, he had two clients, Northern Michigan, uh, where we did the milk elizas for BLV. They just also had to be testing for yonis on a routine basis in milk. His observation, and this is why I think it's so important sometimes to get in field observations from practitioners, said, well, you know, that's funny because in the herd that you said hardly had any BLV at all based on your milk testing, I know he's got yonis, and those cows always seem to do just fine. We know who they are, but they seem to lead long lives, and they go for other reasons than the yonis. In the herd with a very high prevalence of BLV. Once we know a cow is yoni, she's gone within six months. She just falls apart. So there's take that as you will, anecdote. But to the re, the workaday world, there you are. You're you're going to your client's farm. How can BLV impact uh, you know the 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 daily life of your producers? Uh, yes, it reduces milk production. Uh, and yes, it reduces longevity. And uh, we we. The reasons are, as I mentioned, probably now realize is because these cows, for a variety of reasons, don't respond as well. Depending on the infectious challenge, you have to be careful. For instance, subclinical mastitis, but but there are some situations or vaccines. There's growing evidence that cows don't respond as well to vaccines if they are more advanced than that spectrum of leukemia. So the bottom line is, yeah, it uh, costs milk uh, and it can cause uh, uh, well, obviously, shorter longevity in the herd for a cow who's infected. What about beef cows? Is the same thing, like an increased risk of culling? <sighs> That's, uh, beef cows get it. Uh, they have generally a lower prevalence, but there have been, people have looked at that, and it's a little more, I'm not sure to the extent of dairy cows, it's hard to measure, but there have been, uh, links or correlations with reduced cow-calf performance in bulls, interestingly enough, when they're involved as transmitters, and they can be in natural service, then that does seem to impact the longevity of beef cows as well. So it's a long list, milk production, longevity, susceptibility to other diseases, um, vaccine performance in the herd, you know, there's a lot of um, reasons to to prioritize it. How, how common is this disease like in North America at this point? Do we have good numbers on it? I believe so. Uh, Canada has had a very uh, uh, active program. Uh, what I have seen, uh, again, variations between provinces, it's in the 40% range of, now I'm going to stay mostly dairy cows, again, beef cows knock off about 10 or 15% of that, but roughly 40% of the cows have it. I think probably in the states we're a little higher, more like 45 to 50. And if we talk about a herd prevalence, that means you have at least one cow infected in the herd, then it's over 90%. So the likelihood that 
most of the herds have it is very high but here's the catch it is highly variable from almost none to a fair amount you know a lot of cows in fact so the prevalence within the herd is different and what one thing we definitely want to loop back to is okay and then a cow's infected but just because she's infected doesn't mean it's all the same right your number is very interesting because um as i had mentioned to you earlier we did a little owen network study here where we had veterinarians submit blood from cows that um their producers had recently purchased um, into their herd and it was a very small study but we had 39 percent of those cows positive for for blv so kind of right on track with the expected maybe prevalence in in other studies so you talked a little bit about transmission let's let's revisit that um what are the major routes of transmission the uh, as mentioned uh so the the large players are uh, common needle use, as that's probably no surprise to anybody listening. Uh, palpation, especially in heifers, there has been good work to show the occult blood. Uh, I mentioned one thing that surprised us when we first did uh, this prevalence study I mentioned earlier in Michigan back in 2010. Uh, there is a, and I might be careful in association, but I, you know, we got to be careful of cause and effect, but natural service, especially with heifers. Uh, whether it's trauma or acting as a sexually transmitted disease, but there is a very strong association between using bulls, especially in heifers, and a higher prevalence in the cows or the heifers. Uh, probably not used much as it was, uh, but uh, you know, gouge to horning, tattoo pliers, uh, I'm sure practitioners can come up with any kind of things. The other thing that surprised me, uh, and this was first done in Japan, but again we found a strong association with it between herds or among herds uh was uh flies especially the biting blood-sucking stable flies like uh, so that becomes problematic because if you're and we struggled with this for years I, uh, with the michigan state university herd they were doing everything right by the book in terms of palpation and you know, testing and which order of cow, you know, cows we palpated and the needle use. and But they had their dry cows and heifers out on pasture. And, would, you know, can I sit here and say that that was all the problem? No, but that probably left a window of opportunity that no matter what we did in the barn, we were just going to maybe never quite catch it up. There has been some small associations. I'm not sure what to think of. Oh, shared feed bunks we, we can come back to that when we talk about super shedders uh but most of the the issues at hand and, and and just think of what's going on the last 10 or 15 years all the and i'm not pointing fingers just this is a reality all the uh the extensive vaccinations we do or you know jiminy christmas i get out there and you know talk about j5 vaccines and we might be telling somebody sometimes you gotta use more than the you know the normal number of shots think of all the off-sync shots and all the different patterns of th this was not on the uh, on the radar some years ago so unfortunately and then there's uh, more multiple preg checks you know the, some people are now doing preg checks at dry off or a second preg check and all these and, and it's good for the reproductive management of a herd but it also creates more opportunity for that transmission from affected cows to not Right. I hear what you're saying. There's just all these more chances to, to transmit. What about, what about colostrum? 
that is murky to, to be honest uh, there are two schools of thought believe it or not one is it's okay to feed milk or colostrum I'm sorry from uh, infected cows because you are the, the calf is getting antibody protection against the virus and, and there are studies that suggest that's a good thing uh, my take on it is I would be reluctant to I wouldn't have a problem maybe feeding colostrum from an infected cow but I wouldn't want to feed colostrum from a super shedder and and that also has to do with in utero transmission so and again this comes back to yeah I have an infected cow I want to keep an I her on my radar but there is a uh, very much a, a hierarchy if you will of who do I want to care about among the infected cows and the super shutters uh, you know spoiler alert these are the cows who are more leukemic and are shedding more virus uh, those cows I would be reluctant to use as a in my colostrum bank okay let's let's delve deeper into a super shedder who is that what is she doing in the herd term that first got used by my uh, friend and colleague Paul Bartlett very good epidemiologist in his own right uh, my partner in crime on some of the early BLV studies uh, just like yonis we I know it's uh, salmonella it's quite si uh, simply or mastitis it's quite simply that animal that is shedding more infective particles lymphocytes and or virus than another infected animal uh, I'm trying to remember what the number was that Paul came up with but it is orders of magnitude that the amount of uh, virus so what we count uh, what we quantify for an infected cow if you want to measure virus it's called provirus it's called proviral load that is simply the amount that's a measure of the infected DNA remember the virus inserts itself its genetic code into the genetic code of, of an infected cell and then it's in that proviral stage uh, and then at a time a variety of signals it then switches on that cell to start producing the protein and everything that the virus needs to send out more virus into the cow's blood so we measure provirus that's the amount of DNA chips if you will uh, that a cow has and a super shedder is simply one that is much higher. Her, if you took a drop of blood from her compared to another infected cow, she has orders of magnitude higher, more provirus or proviral load than that other cow. Uh, there is a very good, strong correlation, as you might guess, between the leukemia or the absolute lymphocyte count of a cow and her provirus load. I mean, that seems to common sense, which gives practitioners a an opportunity as a crude measure. You can do provirus testing, uh, and but it also gives opportunity for a practitioner to say, "Hey, look at if I got a cow with an absolute lymphocyte count of twenty thousand, not uncommon at all for a super shutter, compared like to the normal, you know, two to four thousand that cow if, if I have two cows who are BLV positive and I got a cow at 20,000 and I got a cow with only a 5,000 lymphocyte count or 6,000 it's common sense which cow is the super shedder okay so 
so practically identifying these cows, the the method is um, lymphocyte count. Is that what you're? That is a is? yes. Uh, it, it's proviral load done in uh, you know select laboratories, but sure, I, I think that's a great way um, to get your foot in the door. And probably just like we used to do for mastitis, where you'd stratify the really uh, you know the staph warriors cows, or you'd look at a smac cell count sheet and who are the highest smac cell count cows down, and you rank them to the lowest. And those are the ones that we're probably going to get more attention to help either cull or dry off a quarter or treat or whatever it gets done. I think that uh, once you identify the infected cows in a herd, you make a, a list from top to bottom of who are the cows at the top of the list compared to the bottom, and, and then we target those cows. Okay. That makes sense. So... How do we, where do we go from now? We know here, we, we know a lot about BLV. We have a lot of cows infected in North America. Like, can you be an open herd and have a BLV control program? Do these things, do these things go together? Um, or is it like a decision to, to be closed and, and work on BLV? Well, in the perfect world, and if BLV was the only consideration that a dairy herd has to consider, or maybe things like salmonella, sure. Who Ask a veterinarian, would you like a closed herd? How many would say sure? Uh, but that may or may not happen. The good news is, uh, and we'll talk maybe uh, a little bit about where do we start, but the good news is a couple things. One, we know that identifying the super shedders and getting rid of those that very select small trouble, group of troublemakers really works in the face of even when we've had frustration with some of those other control methods we talked about because there's still flies or the herd is you know, is an open or is still open and so i i think the the good news is where the old dogma had been oh my gosh you have to change needles and sleeves now i i still don't think we should be stupid about those things and why for goodness sakes if you know your heifers let's say bred heifers uh, have a much lower prevalence than your older cows why wouldn't you in a herd check palpate them first and then go to older cows. I mean, let's just use a little basic infectious disease control here. But I think to your point, uh, yeah, I, I think if we can rank cows and even if folks are frustrated, and yes, we'd love a closed herd, I think, I strongly believe the work we've done here in Michigan is that the super shutters can really get us headway. To that, to that point then, um, can we can we measure the impact that BLV is having in a herd? Like, can we, what are the metrics that you would look at to try to show a producer that um, BLV is, is impacting the herd when there's so many other things on, on the list, right. Of, um, of diseases to work on everything from mastitis to, you know, lameness to, to what have you. Is there a way to do that? Cynthia, the analogy I use is the frustration of, think of mastitis, you mentioned that. Where does most of the producer's attention go? It's those clinical cases, right? Or those one or two cows that are really high in my bulk tank. And whereas it's the day in, day out, the other 25% of the cows are in the herd who aren't drawing a lot of attention to themselves subclinically, where the money is really lost. Anybody about mastitis knows that. It's hard, unfortunately, uh, the science is there. Matter of fact, cows who are leukemic are losing uh, 
know, four or five percent of their production each day. But it's hard to go to a producer and say, aha, look at this cow, look at this cow, and see she's producing lower milk than this one, because as you know, there's a hundred other reasons why those two cows may be producing different milk. The best thing I can say is, like the, the smack cell count analogy, is to drive home the point, especially cows who are leukemic, especially those that are more advanced, those just like in mastitis, are the bigger money losers. Let's target them. Uh, but just to get your foot in the door, where I would start would be something simple like, okay, where do we begin? How about, and I know in Canada you've worked out a system of using bulk tank uh, testing, and it's there. There is a algorithm that uh, has been developed there uh, of at least qualifying a herd as a probably a low prevalence somewhat in between and a high prevalence maybe a practitioner goes to a um, one of their clients and say you know what let's just get a couple usually it helps to have a couple in series let's get a couple bulk tanks done and just even get a whiff or not if you might have a lot of blv cows in your herd from there the next step would be and i know in Ontario, you guys do a lot better job of having herds on DHI than we do. Uh, I would do what's called a profile where you test, depending on the size of the herd, but up to about 10 cows, first lactation, second lactation, third lactation, fourth lactation. So one in each category, as close to calving as possible. There is a very good, and then you just see what proportion of cows are infected and we do this because we want to make sure we get a snapshot of each lactation if just off the top of my head if your herd if your client's herd has 30 percent 25 percent definitely 40 or 50 percent more of their cows infected what a great way to say you know what let's look at the especially the older cows those that are cows are infected and either do a proviral load test or just simply a white blood cell count and a lymph count and then you have your foot in the door, roughly hat. We have how much in the herd? Who has it? Younger, older animals, only older animals. And then, okay, let's identify the troublemakers. And we think we, if we can start targeting these cows, we can really make some headway. Incidentally, it's not just the money these cows are losing. You are really removing the cows that are perpetuating this infection in the herd. That makes sense. That's really... Um a neat approach to start. So the sampling 10 cows from each of those lactation groups would have a pretty high correlation with if you had done this, if you'd sampled the entire herd individually is what you're saying. Absolutely. We, we tried that and it, it's very good indicator, especially any herd I'm sure under a thousand cows, it would work very well. Right. And the bulk tank test as a screening tool to kind of clue you into low-risk, medium-risk, high-risk herd. Yeah, I always looking for the least invasive, uh, you know, protocol for any dairy producer. They don't want more things to do, but that, that to me would be a great place to start. Why would you, you asked earlier, how do I make this a priority? It seems to me if practitioner pulled a couple samples and, and you do it on a routine basis, but, and the, the herd comes back, according to the bulk tank, uh, very likely a low prevalence and Boy, there's probably 10 other things on the plate that they could work on. Right. The high prevalence herd, then the next step is to look for those those super shedders, you're saying. And um, I, you kind of mentioned this, but I just want to revisit it a little bit, is that that's just a, a regular 
purple top blood sample is that what I'm um, like with EDTA and then goes to for a, a lymphocyte count CBC and differential yes that's yeah. right okay. and again to drive home to the producers they're gonna say well why do you want to go out and you know test 23 of my cows because explain to them probably 90% plus of the transmission is, is those handful of cows and probably 90% of the milk you're losing from BLV is that handful of cows in other words they're still in the hotel eating at the bunk all that but they're they're just no longer productive and bigger deal they're just perpetuating in the herds that's why we really 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 like to focus on the super shutters now right the University of Alberta had had some work I don't know maybe two years ago um, they'd done some economic modeling related to BLV control and I think my understanding if I remember the study right was that doing anything actually was worthwhile <laughs> even if it was just single-use needles and um, palpation um, approaches that that came back as being financially um, worthwhile because of the reduced transmission is that your impression as well from now that's a model it's, it's an economic model right so it's not a um, real life but um, hopefully it did a good job of projecting real life oh i think it did uh, i no i simply yes uh, i will uh, and again as i said earlier let's not be stupid and i can think of other good reasons like pyemia and stuff why we sh should not use needles that are dirty and everything else just look at some of those oxytocin balls in the parlor sometimes but yeah i i agree uh my bias is now not that there's been any comparative studies but i think the effort to find the super shedders is probably likely to going to be the biggest payback you know and bang for the buck but right. that's sure why simple things like we mentioned earlier why do you do your your low, you know, why why would you go and, and palpate a super shedder cow and then turn around and then put your arm, sleeve into a, a, a heifer, right? right? So there are some common thing, sense things that should be done as well, of course. Yeah, fair enough. Any other advice for those embarking on a, a BLV control program? <laughs> well, I, I uh, I'm very much into empathy. That is walking someone else's boots, and I know the it's a little bit of an uphill slog. I don't work out in Alberta too of what keeps producers from being interested in BLV. And it's just, as I said, the analogy, the subclinical mastitis is, is uh, I think a very good one. It's, it's something they don't see. It's something you can't quantitate. Uh, so I, the best advice I can give producers or I'm, well producers and the, the vets who work with them, uh, be patient, keep gnawing away, start, I love the idea, you know, that which you've done up in Canada with, you know, figuring out how well the bulk tanks work and, and setting up this system. I think that's a start with uh, the simple things first and then drill down in. You know, don't go in there with guns blazing because we've got to test every single cow and start calling them just because they're BLV and all that. Use a nuanced approach. And I think with time, you'll you'll get to where you want what is the time horizon with a BLV control program? I'd recently spoken with a producer who's been very diligent on Yonis and BLV over the last decade. And um, he expressed to me his not frustration, like, I don't know, just the challenge is that for him was that um, the herd remains at 30% positive BLV, even though, you know, they have a, a structure, they keep, they keep testing the negative animals 
and the over time they see a drop in the number of new new infections um, but because they don't immediately call every animal positive for BLV um, it's a slow decline in the herd prevalence um, or the herd number of positive animals so what is the time horizon is it a decade is it longer uh, or never uh, MSU we, as I mentioned at Michigan State University herd we were doing exactly that and mm -hmm. we were just now we can get into because you had students palping and all that but we just got stuck in the mud about 25 or 30 percent now was that pasture i will tell you when we start applying super shutter targeting and we uh, did this this has been published um ruggiero uh was the last name vicky ruggiero a grad student work with paul and i uh basically when we started targeting the super shares we saw a dramatic increase either in six or 12 months and we do believe if you really target the problem makers you two years you'll see a definite decline now right. there's other things that play in and buying animals and all that and bulls that are continuing to bring infection into heifers if my feeling is if you can use ai and heifers if you're somewhat clever you know you don't do stupid things as i say about order of palpation pastures are problematic but if you really set that hit list of super shutters and keep on working your way down the list I think you can get this that disease down to a level within a couple of years, three years maybe, mm -hmm. and then hopefully you get down to the last two or three, and then you do actually cull the BLV cows and be done with them. Right. The good news is if an animal gets infected with BLV, they're likely to pop positive on antibodies, at least in blood, maybe milk a little later, no, heifers would be blood probably within six or eight weeks so the good that's the good news unlike yonis you don't know who may have yonis for a long time right. if an animal's infected she will probably seroconvert reasonably so the, the nice thing is you can track these animals and don't have a subset of you know carriers like mycoplasma or salmonella or or yonis that you just can't detect because they're not shedding enough and that's doesn't tend to be the problem with blv Right, the sensitivity and specificity of the ELISA is very high. Exactly. So that exactly. Works in our favor. Yeah. Thanks so much, Ron. I, I feel like you've really um, hit on a lot of the the, the pieces that have that have changed in this last decade, um, and and where we need where we need to go. And you've now retired from Michigan State University, and and you're writing in your spare time. Do you want to tell us about your your books? <laughs> Well, thank you for the plug. Uh, yes, I am retired, although I still help. It's kind of like a Ken Leslie, you know, retirement. He just keeps on popping up at meetings, and so do I, and help teaching and all. Uh, hello to my good friend, Ken. Uh, yes, uh, well, thank you. Uh, writing novels, working on the third one about, go figure, uh, veterinary embroiled in suspense uh, stories out in uh, Pennsylvania. They're based loosely on events and things that happened to me while I was in practice 35 years ago and uh, just having a little fun with that. That's super. Thanks so much um, for joining us today. I, I really appreciate you um, uh, spending time with us and it's, it's so nice to see you again. <laughs> and likewise for you, Cynthia. All right. Thanks so much. Thanks for joining us today for this Bovine Owen uh, podcast. For more information about the Bo Bovine Owen Network and our veterinary and producer quarterly reports, don't forget to check out our website at Thank you.